Hey you, are you ready? Grab your pack, grab your tent, grab your gear. Jump in, we're going on an adventure. In Arizona, there's so much to see, so much to experience. At GCU, adventure is never too far away. Offering over 200 academic programs with a Christian worldview and nestled in the heart of Phoenix, you can earn your degree in fewer than four years and explore everything Arizona has to offer. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash azroadtrip. Ali Scotton is a Truman National Security Fellow. He is founder of Scotton Consulting. Their company specializes in sociocultural and geopolitical analysis of the Middle East and uh, grounded in his extensive background in anthropology and international relations. His commentary in the Middle East has been featured in numerous outlets, and that includes the Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, and the National Interest, but most importantly, right here. Uh, Ali, thank you for joining us. Happy Monday. More than a pleasure to have you uh, with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. Um, the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, officials are meeting with the president, uh, or have met with the president at Camp David, and, and you wrote about this in your piece entitled "Countering the Sunni-Shia Divide." Ali, I know this because I'm married into a Muslim family, and I've shared this with you before. So I know more about Islam, especially in, as, as an adult, than certainly I did growing up as just like a normal middle-class American kid. Um, so that people understand, first of all. If you can, and I would imagine you know, the difference between a Sunni and a Shia, because it's not a huge difference, right? Well, there's uh, when we talk about the different sects, um, sectarianism in Islam, there's the religious beliefs, and then there's the just the communities that people belong to. Now, the way that the Sunni-Shia split occurred, uh, it occurred in uh, the 7th century, right after the Prophet Muhammad died. There was a disagreement between his followers over who should be his successor. Those people who ended up uh, becoming Sunnis and following the Sunni tradition believe that uh, the, the successor to the Prophet should be someone that um, is agreed upon by consensus because of his uh, you know, theological expertise and things like that. Uh, whereas the Shias believed that um, the, the succession from the Prophet should go through his bloodline. And so they argued that his successor should be um, Ali, who was his uh, his uh, nephew, and so that was the original the origination of the split between these two groups. Now, over time, a lot of the tensions between these communities has not been because of religion specifically, but just the fact that they are part of different communities competing over uh, politics, territory, and things like that. Now, uh, Ali, your name, and then Ali, you know, the yep. pronunciation, same spelling, all comes from that. I, I know that there are people in my husband's family who are Sunni and that are called, um, that are named Ali, and people assume they're Shia because, you know, names have a lot to do um, in, in, in this uh, uh, religion. In Islam, you can identify somebody largely by a name. Um, you know, you can say somebody's, you know, Muslim or comes from a Muslim family by uh, some of the names of some of some people uh, throughout these uh, countries in, in the Middle East and even uh, India and Pakistan. Uh, if you don't mind uh, sharing, are, uh, is your name at all uh, tied to any kind of a Shia background? Uh, yes, it is. My, um, I come from an Iranian background. My mother's from Iran, and so Ali is a very common name in Iran yeah. among Shias. Um, and so, yes, I come from a... a uh, an Iranian background where Shiism is the main religion, although even though I personally am not a very religious person and don't come from a religious family, it's just a common name, just like how in this country yeah. John and Michael are, were originally Christian names but are now just kind of a common name for everybody. 
I told people when I was in Egypt, my driver's name was Muhammad, and I came out of a restaurant with my mom, and I said, Muhammad, and 40 people turned around. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And, and also to that point, uh, speaking of, uh, before we get to your article on the divide so that people understand, um, and somebody who is Iranian or Persian, as they like to refer to themselves, and they're Shia, they're not always going to be in agreement with an Iraqi uh, Shia or somebody who is from uh, India and in, in is uh, from a Shia ancestry, correct? Well, that's true. I mean, every country has their own version of their uh, religion. In Iran, the official religion, at least the one that is, um, you know, uh, pushed or uh, preferred by the Iranian government, is one that has a supreme leader, uh, Shia Ayatollah, as the head of the government and decreeing um, religious edicts as part of the, you know, the policy of the nation, whereas in countries, for instance, in Iraq, the dominant version of Shiism is referred to as quietist Shiism, in which um, the Ayatollahs believe that they should be removed from worldly governance. And that's actually the more common version of Shiism. Um, the Shiism that was the, the type of Shiism that is um, the official doctrine of the Islamic Revolu- Iranian government, Islamic Republic was pretty revolutionary and created by the founder Ayatollah Khomeini. And so the majority of Shias don't really buy into that. And even within Iran, there's a lot of disagreement over that, too. We're going to take a break, uh, Ali, and when we get back, uh, we'll talk about this Gulf Cooperation Council, these officials that met with the president, and specifically uh, talking about um, if, in fact, we have a nuclear deal with Iran, what the U.S. will do to counter um, the Islamic Republic's influence in the Middle East, Iran's uh, influence in the Middle East. We'll be back with our guest, Ali G. Scotton, right after this. Don't go away. Talking about his piece, Countering the Sunni-Shia Divide. Uh, now, um, uh, your experience and also your background on your mom's side uh, leads back to Iran. In the event of a nuclear deal with Iran, what can and what should, in your professional opinion, the U.S. do or what will it do to counter Iran's influence in the Middle East. And, and I guess before we answer that, let's talk about Iran's influence in the Middle East for our listeners, Ali. Well, um, this, and this is definitely something that the, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries were concerned about, and that's why President Obama held his summit uh, in Camp David last week, was to reassure them that even in the event of a nuclear deal with Iran, he wouldn't be uh, abandoning them and allowing Iran just to you know, take over the entire region. Uh, Iran's rise in the region, its recent rise, really comes out of the um, aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, in which we overthrew Saddam Hussein in 2003, who up until that time was the major rival of Iran. You know, if you remember, uh, in, from 1980 to 1988, Iran and Iraq fought a war to a standstill, basically. When we overthrew Saddam Hussein, it allowed Iran's influence to increase in the region. It became more influential in Iraq, and as a result, the Saudis became more and more concerned about that. Uh, let's talk about also what this council can do. Was there any discussion? Is there any plan? And did President Obama ask or even push for a plan to stop the spread of the sectarian warfare uh, in the region? Because obviously, you know, this this is a problem that plays into this relationship and in, in, in level of power or control um, or influence in the Middle East from Iran. 
So at the meeting, it was mostly, at least what was publicized, was it was a discussion over what the U.S. would be providing to the Gulf Cooperation Council countries to help them defend themselves. So more uh, agreements for weaponry, uh, missile defense, a more increased training and things like that, which is what the GCC was interested in. They weren't interested in hearing about um, you know, what they consider to be lectures on how to deal with their own populations or how to deal with the religious issues. Unfortunately for them, the problems that they're facing in the region, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen now, are, internal, are internally caused issues that cannot be defended against with these you know, large conventional military uh, weapons. Um, and so that's why in my article I was arguing that what the president should be discussing with them is the importance of countering the sectarianism mm-hmm. that's, that's been taking over the region, which in fact for us as Americans, uh, our national security interests, uh, I argue, is a bigger threat to us than a potential rise of Iran in the region. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. I mean, you know, we, we look at and we've been told by former President George W. Bush and, and many of his followers are cronies and that, you know, they have this belief that Iran is one of the axes of e- evil. And you do talk um, about the yes, it's a challenge uh, with Iran emerging from isolation and any deal that we have from them. But that isn't the greatest concern. And when we look just at the facts, I mean, there has been an intensification of this divide between Sunni and Shia, an intensification uh, of the fighting. And and we have seen that this hatred, as you write about, is drawing religious extremists from around the world to fight. And we have three countries now, and a big part of those countries, Syria, a third of it, Iraq. Uh, We just had uh, Ramadi uh, conquered by ISIS today, or in the past 24 hours, and and Yemen. Um, Talk to us about why that is, and I I think it's clear, uh, but why specifically that is a greater concern, and why the United States and even some of our international allies aren't seeing this and you know just you know seem to be so concerned about iran and and almost are are deaf to the cries from syria iraq and yemen about this intensified division and the extremists that are being drawn to those regions to uh fight the with the isis and al-qaeda of our world well the reason that um this heightened sectarianism in the middle east is the biggest threat to our interest is that this is what's drawing the extremists to the region, right? The American, American uh, people who join ISIS from the United States or Europe, they're going there to fight Shias or Christians or, or whatever. They're going there for religious reasons. Whereas the, ori- the origination of the, the fighting in Syria, for instance, was an uprising against dictatorship. In Yemen was a, a, also an uprising against the dictatorship. But the longer that the fighting goes on on uh, sectarian and religious reasons, the more it draws people from our countries there to become more radicalized, gain military training, and then come back and wreak havoc in our own countries. Now, the, the United States uh, government, I think they, they understand this, this problem, but again, it's very sensitive for them to discuss this with their Saudi counterparts or other um, governments in the GCC because they don't like to be told what to do in their own region. Um, uh, and, but, but also, uh, we, you know, for the past 30 years, Iran has been demonized as the biggest threat to the United States, and so it's very hard, and it's definitely a challenge, but it's very hard to change this, uh, to shift this thinking into um, understanding that that may not be the biggest, most imminent threat. And in certain instances, we might have to work with the Iranians. For instance, what we're doing in Iraq now in our right. fight against ISIS yeah. to deal with the, the larger, most imminent threat. 
You talk about how we have to tread lightly in our conversation uh, with, um, you know, Middle Eastern countries. Saudi Arabia is one that you mentioned. But haven't leaders in Saudi Arabia, Arabia, excuse me, and throughout the Arab world, um, as you write about in your piece, for over a decade, haven't we uh, in the United States and other Western governments been warned by Arab leaders that uh, there have been plans to establish a Shia empire across the Middle East uh, out of Iran that play into these spheres, yet we're seeing definitely – uh, uh, not a nefarious, but an outright violent and uh, well-constructed, unfortunately, plan by ISIS to establish caliphates, uh, you know, not just throughout the Middle East, but worldwide, it would seem. Yes. So ever since, again, since 2003, a lot of the Arab countries, Sunni governments have been warning that Iran is trying to create a Shia crescent, basically a religious religious domination uh, of the region. And this is part of a tactic that they use um, because in, in trying to uh, highlight Iran's Shia character, it isolates Iran from the rest of the Middle East. Um, within the Middle East, Shia Iran, the Shias are a minority in general, and Iranian Persians are a minority compared to the Arab Sunni-dominated Middle East. And so the more, at least the, the Saudi government and the other Arab countries feel that the more they highlight this difference, the, the more it will isolate Iran. However, what they've been doing is in using this sectarian rhetoric They've been radicalizing Sunnis and, and drawing and, and funding Sunni extremists into areas like Iraq and Syria, which basically ends up uh, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, creating a sectarian conflict, sectarian and religious violence where there, none had existed before, or where, whereas that had not been the primary driver uh, to begin with. Uh, uh, people who want to call in and get in the conversation, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. On Twitter, people tweeting, Bill tweets, you guys speak as if religious conflict in the Middle East is a new thing. How is this different, and, and is it? And it's a valid point. I mean, religious conflict in the Middle East is not a new thing, and I think some people just think of the Middle East as Israel for the most part. Well, that's definitely the case that religious conflict has been going on in the Middle East for centuries. And, uh, we, you know, we've had religious conflict in our own history as well. That's not a new thing. However, in each specific country and each specific, specific time, the reasons for that conflict are very unique. Um, so, for instance, in Iraq, the reason for the conflict, again, was started by our invasion of Iraq and overthrow of the government and creating a power vacuum. Now, in that power vacuum, uh, communities that had been living together, a lot of them, you know, Sunnis and Shias living in neighborhoods together, intermarrying together. When you get rid of a government and you have chaos, people are going to fall back on these identities. Um, and over time, as the conflict continues, uh, violence will be, uh, you know, um, encouraged along these religious lines that had not been in the case for decades. And so um, these religious tensions or these religious differences do exist and have existed for many many centuries. However, um, you know, it's not inevitable that they would, uh, that, that, that these communities fight, uh, should fight over religious matters, as opposed to perhaps ethnic differences or um, political ideological differences. Um, also, um, also uh, Kevin says, now this is harsh, but I wanted your take. You know, when we asked about how the Islamic Republic should plan to stop the spread of sectarian warfare in the Middle East, and is it possible with such strong divides? He said, go back to the tactics of WW2. Indiscriminately, B-52 carpet bomb the region, war isn't nice, it's war. 
Uh, do you see Russia holding back? Um, what What would be not only your response to Kevin, but what is the best way to attack this? And I don't mean attack necessarily with a specific military attack. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, we saw what happened with, um, you know, using conventional warfare against Iraq. When you uh, overthrow governments and just attack countries like that, you completely um, destroy the, the state structure and the social fabric, which results in extremism and more fighting. So I don't think that that is a solution. Um, the way that we have to uh, address this sectarian issue is that there needs to be reforms within uh, these countries, within the Arab countries, in the Gulf, uh, in the Persian Gulf, in order for um, uh, to prevent. Now, now the main one of the fears that the Arab governments have, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, is that their Shia minorities are loyal to Iran. That's their fear. Now, the. Uh, in, in reality, a lot of these Shia populations are basically want more um, say in their own government and better economic opportunities. But when you continue to, uh, you know, oppress these groups or discriminate against them, you leave them no choice than to, you know, um, than to reach out to Iran or other kind of other uh, actors that are trying to help the Shias. Um, if you give these people more opportunities, then you're going to lessen the ability for Iran to come in and influence those countries, those populations. Uh, like I said, we have a lot of people um, who are uh, who are uh, talking about these uh, uh, situations. Mr. Tuttle tweets, they've been war- uh, warring in the Middle East for generations. We aren't going to stop it, only the second coming of Jesus. Well, and I don't want to get into religion. Um, uh, let me see, let me see, let me see. We have uh, so much uh, go- going on here. They're saying stuff all over the, the, the planet. What if if you were to advise the president, Ali? What would you say, you know, he should do uh, with regard to this? Because this is obviously not a one phone call or one piece of legislation solution. This is a multifaceted problem. Well, again, I would say, you know, what he did in, in the in Camp David, uh, he, you know, the Gulf Cooperation Council wanted more weapons and more symbolic reassurance, which he did, which is fine. But behind the scenes, he really does need to be talking to them about. Uh, internal reform, because all these, all these, uh, all this instability that we see in the Middle East, except for what's happened in Iraq, which is the result of the U.S., has the the fighting was sparked by uh, domestic uh, politics, by people um, fighting, wanting to over, uh, wanting to fight back against dictatorship, have a more say in their own government, uh, better economic opportunities. Um, and over time, as the fighting continued, outside powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran, came in and exacerbated the situation. So to um, be able to prevent that from happening, uh, we need to have internal reforms in the Middle East. Where do you think the United States uh, – when do you think the United States would take the lead that you were talking about and take the action that you were talking about? In other words – what does it take for us to do something like this? For example, ISIS today, we're within the past 24 hours, has captured uh, Ramadi. I mean, you know, how much setback or, or how much terrain do we need to see ISIS gather? How much more bloodshed before uh, the United States realizes that, uh, look, it, it does begin with an I and it's four letters, but it's ISIS, not Iran, that's an axis of evil here? Well, that's a good question, and it's not going to be overnight. Like I said, you know, there's been 30 years of demonization, both from the Iranian side and our side of each other. Um, and so the thought of, you know, cooperating with each other is um, very politically 
um, uh, sensitive. Uh, but um, another thing that I mentioned in my article was that Iran's rise is pretty much inevitable at this point in the region. Again, we overthrew Iran's main rival. Um, the Iranian nuclear deal is going to go through most likely. Sanctions are going to be lifted. Iran is going to be reemerging as a regional power. Now, we can try and contain them like we did throughout the 1990s and uh, up, up until recently, or we can try and incorporate them into a regional security framework where they feel they also have a stake in the security of the region. Um, you know, we've tried containing them, and they've been able to uh, increase their influence in Iraq, continue their support for Hezbollah, continue their support for Hamas. Uh, it, it doesn't really seem like that's going to be working. And so if we could find a way to decrease the sectarian rhetoric and bring the Iranians and the Gulf Cooperation Council countries together uh, over uh, mutual interests, basically security in the region, tamping down on uh, Islamic extremism and um, mutually beneficial economic uh, agreements, then I think that would be the, that, 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 that's the only way that you could have uh, lasting security in the region. Let's take some calls on Line 5 in Utah is Daniel. Daniel, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Question or comment for our guest, Ali Scott. Yes, um, I was wondering what you think the U.S.'s involvement should look, the government's involvement should look like at this point in the Middle East. I don't pay as close enough attention to the Middle East to issues as I'd like uh, uh, foreign policy issues, but I'm just wondering what at this point. I highly doubt you side with like McCain and <laughs> more bombs and more troops and whatnot. But financial, what, what, what do you think our what do you think our involvement should look like right now? Well, that's an excellent question, because if you remember, um, several years ago, President Obama announced his so-called pivot to Asia, and that's, uh, you know, arguing that in long-term U.S. interests, it's in long-term U.S. interests to focus more of our energy uh, in Asia to counter China's rise and, and to um, ensure uh, free, uh, you know, uh, free flow of goods and, and, um, and, and, and ships throughout um, East Asia. But unfortunately, the past few years we've been stuck back into the Middle East. Now, we can't leave the Middle East the way it is, uh, but uh, again, like I said, we need to find a way where we can balance Iran and the Arab countries uh, as both, as, as, as kind of pillars of security in the region so that we don't have to be in there providing the security ourselves. Um, you know, we, we shouldn't be doing things like what we were doing in Yemen, where um, Saudi Arabia was attacking the Houthi rebels in Yemen because they uh, believe that they were proxies of Iran, uh, and then we ended up siding with them. You know, this is an internal dispute that we should not be uh, um, that we should not be interfering in. You know, when we're doing that, basically, um, you know, the Houthis were actually had been fighting against Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and so basically, what we were doing is helping the Saudis fight a group that was fighting Al Qaeda, and so it it just becomes very convoluted and unnecessary uh, distraction. Thank you for being with us, Ali. Uh, time always uh, flies, and I always learn so much from you, and really appreciate you being on the show. We'll have you back again soon. Ali Scotten can be followed on Twitter at Ali Scotten, A-L-I-S-C-O-T-T-E-N. And check out the website for his organization, scottenconsulting.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-E-N, consulting.com.